Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything's connected. We are back today investigating the final summer of the life of Marilyn Monroe, the summer of 1962, from her return from the infamous Happy Birthday Madison Square Garden performance up into the end of July. Before we begin our episode today, I have a spyglass right here to give some enormous thanks to our most recent supporters at patreon.com slash done and done. So grateful for you, DS, Christian B, and Paula B. Holy cats. Thank you for joining the done and done community over on Patreon. So delighted to have you there and so delighted to have you. Thanks for tuning in to listen to today's episode. My goodness, y'all, for as many contradictions as there are for the reasons of Marilyn Monroe's death, August 4th, 1962, there are just as many contradictions and conflicting interpretations of Marilyn's last summer. As the fullness of time continues and blooms, so to speak, many more people involved in her life have revealed more through the years. And the more that folks do reveal, even within their own, whatever colored shade of memory they're revealing it from, sometimes piecing together Marilyn's last few months can be like kind of assembling a mirror ball that has already been broken into a thousand pieces. I find finding what is the real truth, the facts, can sometimes be challenging. In this episode... We aim to explore all the sides and all the shades of this summer of 1962. Marilyn has a few things going on, three different sectors of things. There is, number one, a war with Fox Studios. Number two, there's some really, really shady stuff going down with her housekeeper and her psychoanalyst. The third of this triangle of the summer of 1962 involves the Kennedy brothers. Let's investigate. The day after that Madison Square Garden, Marilyn Monroe is coming back to Los Angeles. She arrives Sunday, May the 20th, to find her housekeeper, Eunice Murray, in her home, cooking. Now, Marilyn finds this a little odd, as Marilyn has fired Eunice Murray before she left for the trip. Let's have a little discourse about old housekeeper Eunice Murray here. She is completely within Marilyn's orbit, in my opinion, as a spy, as a plant for Marilyn's doctor, Dr. Greenson. I want to piece together a few clues here. Way back a few episodes ago, we talked about Eunice Murray 
finding Marilyn's home on Fifth Helena. She's the one that finds the house for Marilyn. Eunice Murray arranges the home, arranges Marilyn's meals, does all of her domestic duties, which is sometimes a blessing to Marilyn is she doesn't really want to mess too much with domesticity and workmen coming to fix the house. Eunice received a very large advance on her salary in the beginning of this year, in 1962. And Marilyn Monroe's friend and publicist, her name is Pat Newcomb. Pat Newcomb and Dominic Dunn were friends. She is one of the sources I go to in attempting to glean what Dominic Dunn has heard Pat Newcomb, bewildered by the large advance, the control that Eunice Murray is taking over Marilyn's life. Pat Newcomb, really good publicist. She's like, hey, I'm perfectly capable of being your friend and companion for all this traveling we're going to be doing this winter and spring. Pat Newcomb says this is from Daniel Spato's biography of Marilyn Monroe. Pat Newcomb will explain it this way. It wasn't hard to understand. Eunice was simply Greenson's spy, sat down to report back everything Marilyn did. Soon, even Marilyn began to see this. It takes her a while, though. There are some jaunts in winter and spring of 1962. One of these is down to Mexico. Eunice Murray joins Marilyn Monroe on this trip, along with Pat Newcomb and George Masters. George Masters will say about Eunice Murray that he found her extraordinary, but, like Marilyn's other friends, in a different way. Quoting George Masters, she was, how can I put it, a very weird woman, like a witch. Terrifying, I remember thinking. She was terrifically jealous of Marilyn, separating her from her friends. Just a divisive person. Make of that what you will. In March of this year, 1962, Marilyn is ill, and during Marilyn's illness is when Eunice Murray really takes over. Pat Newcomb will try to assist. She's Marilyn's good friend. She's doing all the things a good friend does. Here's some soup, and here's some tea, and here's some contracts and stuff to sign. But Eunice Murray, goodness, is really, at least to Marilyn's friends, trespassing on what a hired housekeeper should be doing. And taking this next large section from Daniel Spado's biography of Marilyn Monroe, I feel like Daniel Spado does a great job defining the Eunice Murray, Dr. Greens and stuff. We're going to be using this a bunch in this episode. Pat Newcomb will recall ignoring Eunice's clear resentment of anyone trespassing on what she regarded as her turf. The housekeeper had plenty to occupy her, as she informed Greenson, who immediately ordered Marilyn to double Eunice's salary to $200 weekly, based on the fact that Marilyn's business secretary, Sherry Redmond, was receiving $250, as Eunice said. Likewise, Eunice engaged her son-in-law, Norman Jeffries, his brother Keith, and two friends, for the work to be done in and around the house, without telling Marilyn of the personal relationship. Moreover, 
According to Sherry's daily account logs for March and April, Eunice asked for Marilyn's signature on blank checks for Norman and Keith, a privilege she was rightly denied. This is weird, right? It is possible that Eunice Murray is getting played by the questionable Dr. Greenson as well. Continuing from Spotto, in light of her background and life experience, not to say her presence as Greenson's alter ego, Murray's proprietary attitude is easy to understand. Chosen for its resemblance to the home she lost, and which was, as she said, the bond among herself, Greenson and Marilyn and the house at Fifth Helena became a kind of totem for her. Having lost her own family and husband, the doctor was Eunice's surrogate husband, a paternalistic, ministerial figure whose vocation it was to help others and with whom she had associated herself for 15 years, continuing her adulation of her sister and brother-in-law. With complete charge over Marilyn granted by Greenson, Eunice had the opportunity to correct her past by recreating it. For her, Marilyn's house was hers, thus her virtual appropriation of its design, care, and refurbishing. Just as she was making 12305 Fifth Helena her home, so was Marilyn her daughter, and Greenson her husband returned. In Marilyn Monroe's life, Eunice Murray seemed for a time to regain everything to which she had aspired and then lost. The situation enabled her to be at last the unrealized, successful sister and the nurse caretaker Carolyn had become. Carolyn was Eunice's sister. There's a lot more to that, but I'd like to frame to you what could be a psychological motivation that is not purely intent on evil here. One of the major problems in all of this was that Eunice was living more and more ineluctably in a dangerous fantasy life. Perhaps without their full realization then, Ralph Greenson and Eunice Murray were fulfilling one another's needs. The doctor was creating, as his wife said, a fantasy foster home, a haven for all those he could save, and the nursemaid was taking Marilyn as her life's mission. This becomes intrinsically complicated, investigators, when in April of 1962, Eunice Murray moves into Marilyn Monroe's home on 5th Helena. Upon the move into the home, Eunice Murray is, gosh, taking over more and more. Again, this is from Spotto moving us into May. On Friday, May 11th, Marilyn rang the studio and asked Evelyn to bring some items from her dressing room, a task her stand-in was glad to do. Arriving at 5th Helena and hoping for the chance to visit Marilyn, Evelyn was summarily and curtly dismissed by Eunice. I'm sorry, Miss Monroe is in conference. As Evelyn later learned, Marilyn was simply at the other end of the house or in the bath and unaware of her friend's arrival. But what could I do? Evelyn asked rhetorically years later. Mrs. Murray was like a class monitor for Dr. Greenson. Or as one might add, like Mrs. Danvers the nightmarish housekeeper who terrorized the second Mrs. De Winter after the death of Rebecca. 
Saturday, this is the following day, Paula Strasberg arrived at the house with her sister B. Glass, who had prepared homemade soups and delicacies Marilyn liked. Joe DiMaggio had come to stay for the weekend, and so there was briefly a circle of affectionate serenity around Marilyn, who was cheerful despite her lingering illness. Pat summarized the feelings of several confidants when she said that of all of Marilyn's entourage, Paula was among the most loyal and helpful. She took the rap for Marilyn's lateness, but she gave Marilyn a great deal, and she never tried to own Marilyn or to cut others out of Marilyn's life. Ralph Roberts, who also stopped to visit, saw a warm and supportive atmosphere around Marilyn. Joe was really the only one in her life then, and that gave us hope, for the rest of us knew there was something terribly wrong in Marilyn's relationship with Greenson. Even Rudy was aware of it. Still, Greenson had established a profound dependency, and then he betrayed it. Because just the day before all of this is going on, why does Marilyn need this comfort and cocoon, so to speak? Again, this is from Daniel Spato. On May the 10th, Dr. Greenson and his wife departed for a five-week trip abroad. He was to deliver a lecture in Israel, and they were to proceed to Switzerland for a long overdue visit with her mother, who had suffered a stroke in February. Greenson must have been fearful of leaving his patient too. Fearful for himself, his relationship with her, his control of her. What he did prior to his departure, however, was markedly injudicious. Greenson will write, When I left for a five-week summer vacation, I felt it was indicated to leave her some medication which she might take when she felt depressed and agitated, i.e. rejected and tempted to act out. I prescribed a drug which is a quick-acting antidepressant in combination with a sedative, Dexamil. I also hoped she would be benefited by having something from me to depend on. I can condense the situation by saying that at the time of my vacation, I felt that she would be unable to bear the depressive anxieties of being alone. The administering of the pill was an attempt to give her something of me to swallow, to take in, so that she could overcome the sense of terrible emptiness that would depress and infuriate her. I don't know. That rings a lot of creepy things in my ears. How about y'all? Continuing from Daniel Spotto, with this, the countertransference to which he referred, his dependence on Marilyn's dependence on him is as clear as the monumentally egocentric eroticism which had by this time taken control of him. Ralph Greenson was by now in the grip of an obsession over which henceforth he had no control. Hildy, this is Dr. Greenson's wife, was quite right to be, quote, afraid to leave him alone, unquote. As for Dexamil, it was an acceleration of the drug routine, a combination of dexedrine and amobarbital, an amphetamine combined with a short-acting barbiturate that was eventually removed from the drug market because of the difficulty achieving the correctly balanced ratio 
between the two chemicals. Dexamil gave a lot of ladies a lot of problems in the 1960s. Continuing from Daniel Spato, before his departure, Greenson recommended that Paula be dismissed from the production of Something's Got to Give, still projecting his own feelings onto others. He told Marilyn that Paula was simply taking advantage of her and her money. Marilyn said nothing, and in fact, although Paula soon departed for a brief trip to New York, Marilyn conveyed no such notice of dismissal to her or the studio. But Marilyn was annoyed with Eunice, and within days of Greenson's departure, she handed her a check and dismissed her. By this time, according to Pat Newcomb, Marilyn was on to Mrs. Murray. She resented her and wanted to get her out. Naturally, those of us who were close to Marilyn were delighted. And with this single action alone, as Marilyn told her friends, she was making an important step in self-assertion in establishing her independence from a woman whose meddling interference she resented and whose snooping was offensive. Acting the adult and taking responsibility for her action, this was, she always thought, the goal of her psychotherapy in any case. So the shady good doctor, Ralph Greenson, is out on May the 10th for five weeks. Marilyn now is making her own decisions. She's not exactly happy that he's gone, but Marilyn's reclaiming control in this time period we will have her firing Eunice Murray, headed to New York City to perform for Kennedy's birthday gala, back home again, where we pick back up with Marilyn Monroe walking in, and there's Eunice Murray, who's been fired, making dinner. Greenson, to me, has his hooks in Marilyn Monroe through Eunice Murray. But that's not only it. There's something, again, I think we've seen it in the quoted text, really unhealthy and inappropriate in Greenson's treatment of Marilyn. Greenson has let Marilyn Monroe come to his home and live there for months, saying she needed to build a family bond. So here's Marilyn Monroe living with Dr. Greenson's wife and children, purportedly to build some kind of family structure, but from the opposite side, maybe Marilyn does do a little bit better without Dr. Greenson's influence. Alas, it is back to Los Angeles, back to the set of Something's Got to Give. Marilyn reports back to work Monday, May 21st. The director of Something's Got to Give, George Cooker, can't stand Marilyn Monroe. Hates her. And Cooker's gonna kind of be a jerk about the whole thing. Marilyn's co-star, Dean Martin, adores Marilyn and will support her. But unfortunately, now, Dean Martin gets ill. He's sick and he can't come to work. So Marilyn, back on set, showing up, this is me trying, is doing retakes. She's doing scenes with kids and dogs and Dean Martin is still sick. So we got all this time on the set. Marilyn Monroe's going to come up with this idea to, well, make an international splash, so to speak. There is a particular scene in Something's Gotta Give where Marilyn and character is supposed to swim nude in the pool in a late night moonlit aquatic scene. But hence the problem, it's late at night and Technicolor and the way the film was shot was showing 
the bodysuit that Marilyn had on. And Marilyn's like, hey, I got an idea. Let's go ahead and film this, invite the press, because this is me trying. I know, George Cooker and Fox Studios, you were mad that I got sick for the last few weeks, but I'm back. And hey, if there's anybody who knows how to cause a publicity uproar, me swimming nude in this pool with photographers shooting it will certainly make that happen. The photo shoot will cause a lot of press about the movie. This is all happening late May. We have a Memorial Day. Pretty quiet. No one's on set there. Returning to set June the 1st. 1962, Marilyn's 36th birthday. Greenson's still out of town. He's been out of town for about three and a half weeks. And the day of Marilyn Monroe's 36th birthday begins kind of not a great time. Sometimes all it takes is a few bad days in a row. And something most assuredly happens to Marilyn this week. June the 1st, her birthday, she shows up. There have been birthday things, celebrations planned on the set for that day, but George Cooker shuts everything down. We're not going to celebrate her birthday until we get done filming for the day. This is a Friday. George Cooker keeps everyone filming until after 6 p.m. Finally at 6 p.m., there's a cake wheeled out and a little champagne, but it's Friday night. Everyone's been there all week. Everybody just wants to get home. It's Friday night. So this birthday celebration becomes something really kind of sad. Everybody has a little cake, shoots their champagne, and they're out in 20 minutes. Marilyn will go on and do a charity event that night and then heads home. But at this point, Marilyn is really worried. She knows George Cooker hates her. She knows Fox Studios is really, really mad. Because Marilyn's appearance at JFK's birthday party turned out to not be the most popular move around the studio. The reaction is not great. At this point, Marilyn is very worried about being fired, very worried about the trajectory of where her career goes from here. This is where Dr. Greenson and his complete inappropriateness is going to come back in. Continuing here from Daniel Spado. Early Saturday morning, June the 2nd, weeping uncontrollably, Marilyn telephoned Greenson's son and daughter, Dan and Joan, who had been instructed by their father to respond if she called. Once again, it is hard to comprehend the appropriateness of involving his children in what Greenson himself called a dangerous case. These two kids, oh my gosh, they entered Marilyn's bedroom where they found her indescribably lonely and depressed, then giddy and disoriented, the classic signs of decimal overdose. Following their father's instructions, they called Milton Wexler, who sped to the house and found, quote, a dangerous arsenal, a formidable array of sedatives on her bedside table, and swept them all into his black bag. That night, actually June the 3rd, at one in the morning, Dr. Milton Uly was summoned in the absence of Engelberg to provide sedation. On Monday, June the 4th, Marilyn, sober but livid with rage, felt no obligation to work in a situation from which she felt entirely disconnected. 
Your niece Murray, unaccustomed to seeing her in such undiluted anger, put through a call to Greenson in Switzerland, but he had not arrived yet from Israel. At the same time, Paula, who had flown back to Los Angeles and was in residence at the Chateau Marmont, prepared to help, telephoned Fox that Marilyn would not report until she had discussions with her advisors. Prudently, Paula did not add her agreement with Marilyn that she ought not to work on a picture from which she was about to be dismissed. There are incidents and allegations through this week. To make a very long story short, on June the 7th, Fox Studios will sue Marilyn Monroe for $750,000 in damages and will begin a very negative publicity campaign against her. The studio alleges in not even a veiled way, just an outright way, that Marilyn is unstable, Marilyn is mentally ill, she is late, she's unprofessional, all the same jazz, but Marilyn Monroe last week was right trying. Here she is with an uncooperative director and a studio that is big mad about something else. Marilyn's taking way less money than George Cooker and Dean Martin for this picture. And don't be fooled by this Marilyn Monroe is taking down the studio nonsense. Want to go ahead and tell you what else is happening at Fox Studios these days and the financial drain that the studio is suffering. It's not the filmed on the set something's gotta give film. It is the film Cleopatra with Elizabeth Taylor. That film is losing so many millions Fox Studios has to sell part of their own property to get the money to finish filming the rest of Cleopatra. It's a disaster. What I'm trying to express to you is that Marilyn Monroe and her local filming, where people just have summer colds and summer vacations and stuff, are not breaking Fox Studios financially. Nonetheless, Fox Studios wants to play hardball. They offer Marilyn's part to a few other actresses, even suggesting Lee Remick as a third choice to replace Marilyn Monroe. Dean Martin flat out refuses. He says, I'll quit too if Marilyn's not in this picture. Fox Studios will turn around and sue Dean Martin for that display of loyalty shown towards Marilyn. So now we have the two lead actors on Something's Got to Give, being sued by the studio, nobody's reporting to work anymore, and the whole darn thing is shut down. Because that saves you money, I guess, Fox Studios. Fox will rehire Marilyn Monroe eventually for more money and more power and control in her contract. Marilyn, by the beginning of August, is reminded here that she does have some power. The studio is looking to have Marilyn star in the upcoming Gene Harlow biography that's in discussion. Things will turn around this summer with the studio. Fox kind of backs down from all of it. I mean, the swimming pool photos alone are worth the press. But I bring all of this up to reinforce that Marilyn Monroe is working, trying, negotiating still with the studio while everything else is happening in June and July, too. Like I say, by August 1st, Fox has come around. Trade-offs have been negotiated and Marilyn Monroe will be back. George Cooker will be replaced. August 1st, Marilyn signs a new contract, 
this time a $1 million deal with two pictures, and plans are soon underway to resume shooting Something's Got to Give as soon as possible. So the studio stuff is handled here, but I want to back up the narrative just a little bit back into June because Dr. Greenson comes home from his five-week trip. Marilyn Monroe will make her displeasure known about his extended absence. Again from Daniel Spato, Greenson went directly from the airport to Fifth Helena on the evening of June 6th and then went home and early next morning was back at Fifth Helena. At this point, events took a grotesque turn. The contradictions in Greenson's conduct must be faced in all their complexity. On one hand, he considered Marilyn's condition so perilous that he left specific instructions for her care with his children, three colleagues, and his brother-in-law, her attorney. Having made the decision to depart, he then leapt at once to return, abandoning his wife and doing exactly what a therapist in such a situation is trained to avoid, playing the savior and making himself central in her life. Marilyn's anger notwithstanding, he could have left her career problems in the hands of Rudin and Fox, where they were rightfully being educated. That, however, would have been to admit peers for him, competition. What transpired at their reunion cannot be determined, but his attitude toward Marilyn was clear from a letter he wrote two weeks later to a friend named Lucille Ostro, which reveals the extent of his rage at himself, at Marilyn, and at a situation he had permitted to go beyond control. He had not only missed his vacation, he complained to Ostro, he also missed a few days in New York, planned as an interval, a business meeting with Leo Rostin, a party in Greenson's honor to be given by Dory Sherry, and an appointment with his publisher. All these things he canceled, he said, to rescue his patient. Greenson added that he felt like an idiot, for on his return, Marilyn recovered quickly and was delighted to be rid of the burden of a terrible picture. Furious for the inconvenience, Greenson ended the letter by saying he had canceled his other patients and was now seeing only the schizophrenic one regularly again. She had, in other words, completely taken over his time and his life, but, one might ask, at whose insistence? He was, Greenson told Ostro, depressed and lonely. Very likely, without yet admitting it to himself, he bitterly resented what he had allowed Marilyn to do to him and his family. This letter, dated and postmarked June 22, 1962, is a bitter diatribe of therapist against patient. Everybody on Something's Gotta Give was aware that Greenson had put Marilyn in a cocoon-like situation, said Walter Bernstein. I always felt that she'd become an investment to people like him, an investment not only financially in caring for her, but even the fabrication of her illness. It had become a need for him and others that she be considered sick, dependent, and needy. There was something sinister about Ralph Greenson. It was well known that he exerted enormous influence over her. Susan Strasberg agreed. His close involvement with Marilyn 
was an open secret no one really discussed. But the influence and involvement then led beyond resentment to outrage and anger, indeed to a rage that far exceeded hers. If I behaved in a way which hurt her, Greenson wrote to Marianne Chris, Maryland's doctor from New York City on August 20th, she acted as though it was the end of the world and she could not rest until peace had been reestablished, but peace could be reconciliation and death. This odd comment was followed by his admission that he became, quote, impatient with her constant complaints, unquote, and that he was, quote, being led by counter-transference feelings, unquote. But it was Greenson himself who had a lifelong tendency to irrational fits of anger. An actor and writer who sought his help was told that he ought to go elsewhere because the man, quote, needed a psychiatrist who could love him. You don't understand psychiatrists must love their patients, unquote. This is according to Dr. Greenson. This young man replied that he understood perfectly if love meant concern, but that otherwise this advice did not seem right. Quote, but then Greenson became a violent, screaming hysteric. He completely lost control, and in fact, it frightened me. How dare you challenge me, he shouted. I'm the expert, not you. You are wrong. You are mad. You are a schizophrenic. The man found Greenson after three meetings, a, quote, profoundly unstable man. And then I learned that most of his patients were bored, tennis playing Beverly Hills matrons or movie stars, and he hated them. In fact, he made no secret of it. Other ex-clients felt uncomfortable at the constant intrusion of sex and questions about intimate sexual matters, whenever possible, into therapeutic discussions. I mean, all of this is inappropriate. Ralph Greenson and Eunice Murray will continue to interfere in Marilyn Monroe's life until its end, but I detail all of that for you to provide a bit more information about all the players here involved in Marilyn's day-to-day. Add on to that all of the Fox Studio drama, firing, rehiring, a battle of control is happening for Marilyn Monroe. Between friends, between the questionable doctor, between the housekeeper, between the studio, Marilyn is pulled in a lot of different ways here. This is only one part of the plot that is happening the summer of 1962, friends. The other part of the summer of 1962 plot is that of the Kennedy brothers, Jack and Bobby. Our man Nick was fairly reticent in talking about Marilyn Monroe, and this is where we have to use the clues that he has left. For this next portion of the episode, I'm relying heavily on James Spada's book about Peter Lawford, the man who kept the secrets. Dominic Dunn and Peter Lawford are woven together in an odd way throughout their common years in Hollywood. The two of them share times both on the way up and on the way down. In last week's Not Done Yet Patreon episode, I provided a little bit more detail about their relationship. They have spent time together in Malibu Beach, in that beautiful home when all things were going great. They have also spent time together in Swifty Lazar's bathroom 
doing cocaine. They hang out in seedier situations as they both spiral out. To me, Dominic Dunn would have heard a lot of these stories directly from Peter Lawford, as well as his friend Pat Newcomb, Gloria Romanoff, Jean Carmen. James Botta's book really is wonderful about Peter Lawford. It's a fascinating lens into Lawford's life. And again, I've leaned heavily on it to understand what Peter is going through in this particular time frame in order to garner back what he may have communicated to our man, Nick. Dunn knows things. He knows about a lot of it. And as little as he does mention Marilyn Monroe, Dominic Dunn spends an inordinate amount of his career writing about the Kennedys. It is spurned on by something. Think this is one of those origins. We have talked about Marilyn's affair with Jack Kennedy, given some background information on that, but let's catch us up here. So summer of 62, the studio's against her. The press is against Marilyn as well, helped along by the studio. Marilyn is in a spiral of alcohol and pill misuse, insecurity, fear, depression, an angry, irrational doctor, a housekeeper who is Mrs. Danvers, for goodness sakes. And after months of riding pretty high, like summer begins to be a little bit of a low. Marilyn feels after JFK's birthday gala, JFK's left her high and dry. They don't talk anymore. He's not returning her calls. He's not reaching out. And Marilyn feels a little bit used again. Maybe she realizes that Jack just wanted her for the notch on his proverbial belt, not because of Marilyn's own person, not for her thoughts, her own individual attributes. Marilyn was simply a contest to JFK. I want to pull Marilyn Monroe's friend Jeannie Carmen back into the story here because Jeannie, Carmen, and Marilyn have been attending all of the same parties over the last year where Marilyn and Jack Kennedy were appearing together as a couple. From James Spada, the man who kept the secrets. Jeannie Carmen had often been present at the Lawfords with Marilyn and Jack Kennedy, and she hadn't liked what she'd seen. Peter introduced me to the president at the beach house. He was the go-between. I like that term better than pimp. It was so easy for Peter because he had that house and that made it easy for everyone. I was always amazed, though, at anybody coming there, especially the president, because it wasn't a totally private house. There were houses right next door. Like college fraternity brothers with a sexy co-ed, Peter and Jack had become more brazen with Marilyn as time went by. At first, she had been part of a small group to dine with the president at the beach house, and he would take her back to his hotel at the end of the evening. Before too long, as Mrs. Dean Martin recalled, they got a little too gleeful and were not discreet at all. Peter once telephoned Marilyn to invite her to a party, and she asked who else would be there. Among the names he gave her, she recognized two high-priced call girls. She coldly declined the invitation. Jack Kennedy's cavalier treatment of Marilyn left her alternatively clingy, belligerent, and despondent. Her Los Angeles psychiatrist son, Daniel Greenson, now a doctor himself, 
remembered going to see Marilyn that summer when his father was out of the country. Quote, this woman was desperate. She couldn't sleep and she said how worthless she felt. She talked about being a waif, that she was ugly, that people were only nice to her for what they could get from her. She said life wasn't worth living anymore, unquote. Milt Evans tried to cheer Marilyn out of one of her depressive moods by telling her, Come on, Marilyn, you know everybody loves you. She replied, Everybody doesn't love me. The only ones who love me are the guys who sit in the balcony and jerk off. Marilyn was devastated when Jack Kennedy tried to distance himself from her. She began to call him at the White House and wrote him what Peter termed, quote, rather pathetic letters, unquote. But if Marilyn hoped for some help from Peter, she soon realized it wouldn't be forthcoming as he too began to avoid her. I wonder where the hell Peter is, she asked Jeannie Carmen. I haven't been able to reach him for days. Increasingly now, Carmen noted, Peter was making himself scarce. Peter would disappear on you when he didn't want to talk. The president was also unavailable to Marilyn. Her letters and phone calls to him went unanswered. Finally, she threatened to reveal the affair to the press. This had the hoped-for effect, Jack responded. He sent Bobby to Los Angeles to talk to Marilyn and soothe her feelings. According to Peter Lawford's third wife, Deborah Gould, Peter told her that Bobby's mission as messenger for his brother marked the beginning of an affair between him and Marilyn. They had been sexually intimate a few times before the encounter in Marilyn's dressing room at Madison Square Garden, but now they found themselves deeply drawn to each other. Marilyn, out of a kind of desperate transference of her affection from Jack to Bobby, and Bobby, because his physical attraction to Marilyn, was now joined by a deep compassion for her suffering. This affair, by all accounts, was far more serious than the one between Marilyn and Jack, and it developed quickly. Bobby began to spend more time in Los Angeles, always seeing Marilyn, often at the Lawford's house. Lynn Sherman, a neighbor of Peter's, noticed that, quote, there were many, many rendezvous there. The official car used to drive up, and you knew Robert Kennedy was in town, and then the help would come in and say, Marilyn's arrived. Sometimes I'd notice Bobby and Marilyn go out through the patio to the beach to walk. Chuck Pick, a 20-year-old parking attendant at Romanoff's, whom Peter had befriended two years earlier, recalled working a party at the Lawford house one night. Marilyn was there, and so was Bobby. One of the Secret Service guys said to me, You have eyes, but you can't see. You have ears, but you can't hear. And you have a mouth, but you can't speak. You're going to see a lot of things, but you have to keep quiet. I didn't know what he was talking about, but a little while later, I guessed. The party was breaking up, and Marilyn and Bobby were leaving together. I brought around his white 1956 T-Bird, and Marilyn got into it, and I just sat there. I guess I wanted to sit next to Marilyn Monroe for as long as possible. Finally, Bobby said, okay, you can get out now. And he got in and they drove away. The Lawford's next door neighbor, Peter Dye, recalled Marilyn telling him that she was quote unquote nuts about Bobby. Absolutely crazy. 
But it wasn't a physical attraction for her. It was more mental because she was depicted as a dumb blonde. You always want what you don't have, and Bobby was a bright guy. That's what turned her on. Jeannie Carmen, who lived in the apartment building on Doheny Drive in Beverly Hills, where Marilyn kept an apartment even after she purchased her home, remembered being at Marilyn's place once when Bobby Kennedy dropped in. He was very surprised when I answered the door, and it seemed as though he was going to turn around and leave, but Marilyn came out of the bathroom with her robe on and her hair wrapped in a towel, and she jumped into his arms and they kissed. Then we sat down, and they were kind of like two kids in love. Marilyn had kept a diary for years, mostly to remind herself to do things and bring some organization to her sometimes jumbled affairs. Now with the Attorney General of the United States spending so much time with her, she began to jot down notes of the things she and Bobby discussed, especially after he complained she didn't remember half the things he told her. She wanted so much to be a part of his world, Jeannie Carmen recalled. She thought how Bobby would be her passport to becoming a great lady. The stuff I saw in Marilyn's diary, things about Jimmy Hoffa and Fidel Castro, it didn't mean anything to me because I was just a stupid young girl and couldn't have cared less if they all killed each other. Now, these diaries do come into play. Anthony Summers, author of Goddess, his biography of Marilyn Monroe, which is also the focus of a Netflix special about the life of Marilyn Monroe and all of these tapes that Anthony Summers collects over the years. He conducts years and years of research and records it all meticulously. Much of all of the above about her diaries and meeting with the general and all of the inappropriateness with the Greenson family is all referred to within Anthony Summers' works. Marilyn is making notes in her diary. She is talking with the Greensons about the general, her lover at the time. Both Dr. Greenson's wife and daughter know that Marilyn is involved with someone at a very high level. She's visiting with the family, giggling about her new smart man. Both Anthony Summers, his book Goddess, as well as his Netflix documentary are fantastic, but it is back to James Spada that I will return to here in connecting this back to Bobby Kennedy. Because there are a lot of folks, including Daniel Spotto, including some other biographers, that say, nope, didn't happen. There was nothing ever between Robert Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe. A lot of people defend this stance, saying that Bobby was a loyal and faithful Catholic family man. He was devoted to his wife, Ethel. Remember, our man Dominic Dunn was at that wedding of Robert and Ethel. So can you imagine how differently our man Nick feels about the couple when you've been to their wedding? Again, something spurns it on with him. Back to James Spada. It seemed unlikely to Jeannie Carmen, however, that Bobby had confided in Marilyn about sensitive issues, as much as her diary notations seemed to indicate. She told me she made notes of things he told her, but you never know when your girlfriends are telling you the truth. I think she made those notes when he was talking on the telephone in the hope of having something to talk to him about later. It probably never occurred to Bobby that she was listening to his conversations. Neither did it occur to him at first that anybody else was. 
But by late July 1962, he, Jack and Peter, had become aware of the fact that Peter's beach house and both Marilyn's house on Fifth Helena and her apartment on Doheny were bugged. The Kennedy brothers' affairs with Marilyn Monroe, they both now realized, had left them extraordinarily vulnerable. The enemies the Kennedy administration had made, from the Mafia Dons they had betrayed, to the pro-Castro forces whose leader they had attempted to kill, were not lax in collecting as much evidence of Kennedy malfeasance as possible in the hope of retaliation. Suddenly, Robert Kennedy's relationship with Marilyn Monroe had become dangerous, and Bobby knew he would have to end it. Goodness, Robert Kennedy, like his brother Jack, begins not to return Marilyn Monroe's calls. In mid-July, Marilyn will confide to her friend Robert Slatzer, lamenting sort of the disconnection from Bobby that's happened, and saying to her friend Robert that he said he was going to marry her. And upon this revelation, Robert <laughs> Slatzer is astonished. He tries to reason with his friend Marilyn. Honey, he's married with seven kids. His brother is president. That's not going to happen. They're the Kennedys. Nobody gets divorced in the Kennedy family. Marilyn, you're dreaming. And this is how Slatzer sort of describes this scene. Marilyn's like, what? You don't think he meant it? Like, incredulous that Bobby Kennedy would have told her a lie. And then Marilyn begins to get angry thinking maybe, just maybe, Bobby was using her just like Jack did. Marilyn's anger will grow, so will her sadness and depression. Back to Spada. By mid-July, both Kennedy brothers knew that their affairs with Marilyn had put the administration in great jeopardy. According to Fred Otosh, a disgruntled former employee of his had tipped Peter off about the bugging devices in his house. Suddenly, it was clear that any number of Kennedy enemies could have gathered damaging information about the president and the attorney general. So let's talk about listening devices for a moment, because there are bugs everywhere at this time planted by everyone, not only on telephone lines, but internal planted in the rooms of homes to bugs. Who's doing the bugging? Well, Peter and Marilyn will install their own recording devices in their home, but they will not be very helpfully helped along by all kinds of other folks, too. Goodness, who's getting bugged? Frank Sinatra, Sam Giancana, Jeannie Carmen, God knows who else. They've planted their own bugs, and then we have the government, Mafia Dons. Everybody's bugging everybody. I need you to know that. Sometimes it's the government, sometimes it's the mafia, sometimes it's the studio. But here it's all fun and games and everyone's switching sides or trying to gain intelligence for themselves to use or to use against others. Dirty times with bugs and listening devices, friends. Everybody's bugging everybody. Back to James Spada. According to Fred Otosh, there were a number of people besides Jimmy Hoffa on whose behalf Marilyn Monroe's and Peter Lawford's houses were bugged. Initially in 1959, certain elements of the Republican Party had hired Otosh to bug Peter's house for purely political reasons. Later, recalled Otosh, 
When things started developing with Mafia Don Sam Giancana and Johnny Roselli and the Kennedys, there were other electronic devices installed by other people for other reasons. Now you're developing another profile to embarrass the White House because now the Kennedys are in power. Now they're fucking over a lot of people who are taking great offense at what they're doing. You've got the Teamsters, who had a hard-on for them, Organized Crime, who had a hard-on for them, the FBI, who had a hard-on for them. You had the CIA, who wanted to neutralize them because they didn't want them to take control over the agency. And the Republican Party was still interested in a derogatory profile because they wanted them out after four fucking years. For more than two decades, Otosh refused to say whether or not the Kennedys had been under surveillance. But when several of his deputies began to speak out, he joined them. I would have kept it quiet all my life, Otosh said. But all of a sudden, I'm looking at FBI files and CIA files with quotes from my investigators telling them about the work they did on my behalf. It's stupid to sit here and deny that all these things are true. Yes, we did have Lawford's house wired. Yes, I did hear a tape of Jack Kennedy fucking Monroe. But I don't want to get into the moans and groans of their relationship. They were having a sexual relationship, period. The Kennedy brothers know that everybody's bugging everybody. And now Robert needs to end it with Marilyn. Back to Spada. Robert Kennedy's first gentle attempts to extricate himself from the Monroe affair were unsuccessful. Marilyn refused to accept the end of the romance without an adequate explanation. He should face me and tell me why, she said, or tell me on the phone. I don't care, I just want to know why. A reason was not forthcoming, and Marilyn called Bobby repeatedly to get one. He changed his private office telephone number, forcing her to place calls through the Justice Department switchboard. The calls... Her phone records reveal eight in little over a month went unanswered. Angry, Marilyn called Bobby at home for the first time, and he was furious with her. Matters continued to worsen, and Marilyn finally turned to Pat Lawford for help. According to Jeannie Carmen, Marilyn never blamed Peter for involving her with the Kennedys. He was always the good guy. Peter could do no wrong as far as she was concerned. Marilyn told Bob Slatzer that she had spoken to Patricia Lawford about her problems with Bobby. Pat told her she should really forget it, that she should ignore Bobby's promises. She told Marilyn something like, Bobby's still just a little boy, but you have to remember he's a little boy with a wife and seven kids. She told Marilyn that marriage to Bobby was out of the question. She also said that part of the reason Bobby broke off with Marilyn was tremendous pressure from his mother, Rose. She strongly disapproved of Bobby and Jack's behavior. Rose laid down the law to Bobby about Marilyn about a week before he broke things off with her. Peter and Pat watched Marilyn's disintegration with alarm. She was taking more and more sleeping pills to sleep at night, drinking champagne earlier and earlier in the day to elevate her mood. Her fears of aging, of losing her appeal, had been so badly exacerbated by her firing from something's gotta give and by her rejection from the Kennedy brothers that she was now chronically depressed. Increasingly, she was, quote-unquote, letting herself go. 
Bill Asher, the director, remembered playing volleyball at Peter's once when, quote, Marilyn came out of the house and it was so sad. She was wearing slacks and she had a slit in the back of her pants. She had lost all of her sense of respect for herself. By then, she was unkempt and dirty and wobbly on her legs. Hold on here, though. Like, Marilyn's having some troubles. She's had an angry summer. Her doctor's been out of town, and when he comes back, he's kind of a lunatic. She's got a friend, network, and support. But again, June and July, rough summer for Marilyn. Fred Otosh will also confirm that Marilyn Monroe is bugging herself. Marilyn Monroe contacted Fred Otosh about getting equipment to bug her own house, with Fred Otosh saying he has no idea why she wants to do this, but maybe to have audio that she can prove something about the Kennedy brothers. This particular thing about Marilyn bugging herself has been verified by the Kennedy hairstylist Mickey Song. Mickey Song, remember, was the hairstylist who did the legendary flip of Marilyn's hair at the Madison Square Garden performance. Mickey Song knows she's bugging herself. This has been verified doubly, both by Marilyn Monroe and Bobby Kennedy. Back to Spada. Late in July, Marilyn summoned Mickey Song, who assumed she wanted him to style her hair. When he arrived at her home, he was taken aback to find that she didn't want her hair done. Instead, she pumped Song for information about Bobby and Jack, where they had been, whether he had ever seen them with other women. I didn't want to get involved, and I remembered how Peter, Bobby, and Jack had tested me to see if I was a gossip. So I just kept telling her, I don't know, I don't know. She told me the Kennedys were using me just as they were using her. She tried to make us comrades against the Kennedys. I just said, I'm not being used, they're treating me great. Song told Marilyn nothing, and a few weeks later, after Marilyn's death, he was glad he hadn't. I saw Bobby, and he said to me, You're always defending the Kennedys, aren't you? That's good. I just thought he'd heard something about me from someone, but then he said, I heard a tape Marilyn made of you a couple of weeks ago. I was stunned, Song says. I had no idea she was taping me. I guess she was trying to get something on them to keep them in line. At the time, I really didn't care about Marilyn and the Kennedys. Now I think she was abused. They played with her, and they tired of her, and I think they found her a lot of trouble to get off their hands. She wasn't going to go that easily. Investigators, we are making it now to the end of July 1962, Everybody's bugging everybody else or themselves. And we've heard Marilyn is alternatively falling apart or getting herself back together. Again, a lot of conflicted information about what's happening this particular summer. Marilyn will, on the positive side, reach out to her old friend and former business partner, Milton Green. She's really excited and looking forward to them getting together. Marilyn is planning a Labor Day party for 25 people at her new home. Marilyn is also continuing daily with pills and alcohol. Again, really delicate balance between the two. Peter and Patricia, looking to help their friend or looking to help the Kennedy family, 
will bring Marilyn up to the Calneva Lodge. This is the casino resort in Lake Tahoe. Marilyn Monroe knows all about the Calneva. She's been hanging out there for a while. Remember, this lodge is co-owned by Frank Sinatra and Sam Giancana. This place has been a second home to many of the Rat Pack Hollywood folks. However, this particular weekend, the last weekend of July, goes really badly. According to Gloria Romanoff, there were copious amounts of alcohol over the weekend, and Marilyn told Gloria Romanoff that she had become so immune to the effects of barbiturates that they no longer worked for her except in large doses. Gloria Romanoff says, so she'd begin about nine in the evening and build up that lethal combination of booze and pills. On this particular weekend, the phone line to Marilyn Monroe's room is kept open, which will end up saving her life that Saturday night. The switchboard operator at the Calneva hears labored breathing from Marilyn's room, immediately notifies Peter Lawford and Patricia Kennedy, who rush to her room and begin reviving her. Patricia Kennedy, Lawford, takes off after this to head back to Hyannisport for a visit with her family, leaving Peter and Marilyn Monroe to get back to Los Angeles together. Both Peter and Marilyn drink heavily on the plane ride back. Marilyn will take a taxi home. Peter gets off the plane and finds a shared ride home with the pilot and the crew members of the plane. But the odd thing is here, Peter needs to make a phone call on the way home from the airport. Peter asks when they're about three minutes away from his house, the pilot and the crew and everybody too, just wanting to get home. Peter's like, yeah, I need to stop here and make a phone call. And the crew and the pilot are like, but your home is literally three minutes away. Why can't you just call from there? From James Spada. The reason, of course, was that his phone was bugged. And what Peter said during the 30-minute conversation was of a very sensitive nature. He was warning Robert Kennedy that Marilyn had begun making threats. Threats that, given her highly unstable condition, could not be taken lightly. The most disturbing of them was Marilyn's ultimatum that unless she heard from Bobby, unless he explained to her face-to-face why their relationship was over, she would hold a press conference and reveal their affair. She hinted to Peter that she had tapes of herself and Bobby, tapes she would play to prove what would be a startling revelation. Investigators, that takes us to the end. It is with those startling revelations and more that we will return to in our next Done and Done episode. Our next episode will cover the very last days of Marilyn Monroe's life, as well as the legacy that she left. Friends, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you joining me today. Thank you, thank you, thank you for tuning in to listen, for all your support of Done and Done for your kind reviews, for your emails, for telling your friends about what we're doing here. If you need more Done and Done, until we're back next week, please check out patreon.com slash doneanddone for all kinds of bonus episodes, all connecting with deeper dives into our investigation. Again, tremendous thanks. I hope everybody has a terrific week. Until we meet again, stay curious and keep on investigating.
Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.